the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wanky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Good morning. 
Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and uh, my guest this hour is, uh, let's see, how can we put this, um, a Baltimore lawyer uh, with the firm of Liebman and Shively. He is uh, a graduate of uh, Dartmouth and uh, the University of Chicago Law, and uh, he's written extensively on uh, political things. Um, his newest book, which we're going to talk about this morning, uh, I believe it's his newest book, although he is somewhat prolific. He may have <laughs> some more since this one came out, but Vox Clementis in Deserto is the name of the book, which uh, uh, translates to mean A Voice Crying in the Wilderness. It is the uh, Dartmouth um, motto, I believe. And uh, joining me by phone is its author, uh, George Liebman. George, welcome to the show. Good morning. Oh, it's good to talk to you. Um, now, as I understand it, this this book is um, a collection of uh, about approximately 30 years' worth of uh, essays and opinion columns chronicling the failings of the past four presidential administrations. Um, how, how did this idea come to you, George, to, to put this collection together and to add a couple of your own? Well, it, it seemed to me that it was uh, the pieces clung together in a way because they all dealt with the inadequacies of presidential leadership. And rather than leave them scattered, it seemed to me that the whole was somewhat greater than the sum of its parts. 
uh, I think we have a, a real problem in this country in terms of the way we select the head of state. Uh, and the problem, I think, really began with the ascendancy of the direct primary uh, in really in 1960 uh, when uh, John Kennedy defeated uh, Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey, uh, both of whom were uh, considerably more experienced uh, than he was and were in many respects deeper people than he was. And since then, we've had a series of uh, candidates like Kennedy who would never have emerged as nominees in the day of the true political convention or if you want to be pejorative about it, the smoke-filled room. Uh, no uh, political convention or smoke-filled room would have nominated uh, Barry Goldwater, um, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Barack Obama, uh, Donald Trump, George Bush the Younger. Um, all of these people were either unknown to the national political class, if you will, or uh, were all too well-known in the sense that their personal defects and limitations were well-known, and yet they became president thanks to the direct primary. Um, when the direct primary began to be instituted, uh, uh, William Howard Taft, who was then the president and was a violent opponent of it, predicted that, that the result would be that people of little experience would be nominated, that money would play a much greater role than it otherwise would, and uh, that the consequences would not be good because conventions of office holders usually choose the more moderate candidate. Uh, this is not so of primaries. And uh, the results have really gotten serious. I mean, we've had a whole series of presidential candidates and even vice presidential candidates, who, um, put bluntly, shouldn't have been there and would never have risen, risen to the top in a parliamentary system. When you look at the people who have been uh, chancellors of Germany, for instance, or prime ministers of Great Britain. Do you think that uh, Joe Biden fits that mold, or is is he a return to the kind of choices that might have been made in a smoke-filled room? I think he, I, you know, I think he is a return to the smoke-filled room uh, uh, to a considerable degree, and I think that came about uh, simply because of the sheer number of candidates. I think uh, it almost became a reductio ad absurdum of the primary process, uh, uh, and it was sort of a piece of exhaustion that he was uh, nominated. <laughs> That's an interesting way of putting it, George. But yet we didn't see the same phenomenon in uh, uh, 2016 with Donald Trump and his uh, 16 fellow primary candidates in the Republican you know, I Party. Think, uh, I think the media nominated Donald Trump. I think, uh, um, and I, I don't know this is a, whether this is a fashionable view, but I think... Uh, Many people in the media wanted the weakest possible Republican candidate and saw him as almost a figure of fun who would fit that mold. And I think he was, uh, in many ways, the weakest possible Republican candidate. I think if, uh, for example, John Kasich had been the nominee, then the election wouldn't have been close. Uh, but um, we 
got Trump. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he would have been the last person uh, who, would, who would have been chosen by the uh, Republicans in Congress or the Republican governors. I think the only Republican politician of any prominence who endorsed him was John Ses- was Senator Sessions, and we know what happened to him. Uh, it's uh, quite quite a remarkable phenomenon. And I think it's still true. The media is fascinated by Trump, understandably so. I mean, he's very entertaining. But uh, nobody else can grow in that shadow when so much of uh, the publicity about politics centers on this one person. He takes up a lot of the spotlight. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly other people in the in the Republican Party. Uh, Senator Sass, for example, of, of I guess it's Nebraska. Uh, Kasich, even though he's out of office. Um, some of the uh, Republican governors, DeWine in Ohio, uh, Hogan in Maryland, Baker in Massachusetts, uh, who are who have done a good job, but who just uh, are unknown and uh, get, you know, 1% of the attention that Trump gets. And uh, the congressional leaders, uh, of course, are better known. But even so, it uh, it, it does limit the public's choices to a considerable degree when you have this fascination with uh, one person. More with author George Liebman straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. 
Yo, speaking. Oh dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? Mm. It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. More with author George Liebman straight ahead. George, why these... Um, why these four presidents, Clinton, Bush, Obama, and uh, Trump? Is it um, just because of recent memory, availability of material, um, well, showing a trend? Are, yeah. I started writing uh, you know, op-ed pieces about 20, 25 years ago, and uh, I thought the four together uh, illustrated the same phenomenon. They had the advantage of being two from each party. Uh, and they all four, in different ways, were really uh, not qualified for the offices they held and together have done a great deal of harm to American politics. So let, me, let me go through them one by one. Yeah, please. Uh, Clinton, uh, Clinton uh, was very young. Uh, he uh, was governor of a small state. His record in that state was not one of great achievement. Uh, uh, everybody knew about his philandering, uh, uh, and he was, uh, you know, he was nominated. He he had some unexciting opponents in the Democratic primary, but the press got fixated on him because he had some paper qualifications. He was a former Rhodes Scholar. Uh, but there was fundamentally no there there. He got through the primaries uh, on the basis of generalities, and when he got to be president, uh, there was no agenda. I mean, he started out with, with gays in the military, which is not one of the greatest national problems given the state of our high schools, for example. Um, and he kind of went on from there, and at the end of eight years, uh, there was really no record. Um, he uh, accommodated uh, deregulation to an excessive degree. He left behind a, a stock market bubble. 
he laid the foundation of the later banking crisis. Uh, the, uh, there were ta corporate tax changes that uh, bore rather bitter fruit in shareholder buyouts and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and of course, um, he got involved in the Yugoslav Wars, which generated uh, millions of refugees and helped destabilize Western Europe. So uh, his was not exactly a glittering record, and the last term was devoted largely to sitting in a bunker defending himself uh, against an impeachment effort. Then you had George W. Bush, who came from a weak governor state where the lieutenant governor is almost as powerful as the governor. Uh, no one thought he was a great leader of thought. Uh, he didn't start thinking seriously about politics or anything else until he was in his 40s. Until then, he had a rather serious drinking problem. And again, he is not a candidate who would have emerged in any parliamentary system uh, as a leader of a party. Then you had Mr. Obama, who was if possible, even less experienced. Uh, he had been the Illinois state legislature, legislator where he, uh, his, he was noted for dodging tough issues. He was a senator for a very brief period. And uh, uh, again, when he assumed office, uh, it was the same syndrome that affected George W. Bush and Clinton and Jack Kennedy the what-the-hell-do-I-do-now syndrome. <laughs> he, he was not a person who arrived with an agenda. I mean, whatever one may think of Lyndon Johnson, for, for instance, he, he knew what he wanted to do. The same thing, I think, was true of Reagan. It was true of Nixon. Uh, uh, it was certainly true of Roosevelt and Hoover. But uh, when you get someone who's very light on experience and is not particularly intellectual and gets nominated because of uh, celebrity, uh, you get this bewilderment. And uh, what uh, what uh, Obama you know, Obama chose uh, health care as his project. Why I don't know. I mean, to my mind. As I said, the state of education in this country, particularly high school education, is a much more serious problem. But uh, you know, he chose health care as his project. He came up with this great sprawling bill that cost an enormous amount of money and did nothing for public health properly so-called, as we saw at the time of the COVID epidemic, when uh, it turned out that very little money had been invested in uh, the Center for Disease Control and uh, uh, public health properly so-called. Uh, uh, I, I heard, uh, I think it was the head of the World Bank at the time, uh, uh, Kim, uh, at one point made a speech saying that uh, if you assembled all the public health experts in the country, or at least the leading ones, and asked them how the money that had been spent on Obamacare could have been spent for public health, none of them would want anything like Obamacare. Obamacare was a piece of consumer legislation. It, was, it helped some people's pocketbooks. But in terms of suppressing disease, in terms of dealing with uh, venereal disease epidemics, uh, lead, point, lead paint poisoning, uh, uh, diabetes and obesity, um, it had no effect at all. It had nothing to do with those things. And uh, it was essentially, in those terms, a waste of money. It relieved people's financial anxieties, but it didn't uh, 
much ease their pain or help them live longer. So his was, a, a, I think, a failed administration, and he also managed to exacerbate, exacerbate weight ratio problems because his formula was one that relied so heavily on the black vote. He had awakened to the fact that uh, uh, blacks are a 13% minority, but since they almost all vote Democratic, uh, this meant that they were at least a 25 or 30% minority in Democratic primaries, which meant that uh, a candidate who could mobilize that vote was halfway to the Democratic nomination. And that was his formula. So his formula was one that was really heavily dependent on mo mobilizing blacks. And the only problem was that in the process of mobilizing blacks, uh, he exacerbated uh, racial tensions. Uh, and uh, so his legacy was not a very positive one. And then uh, Mr. Trump, I mean, uh, Mr. Trump was a protest candidate, uh, fundamentally. Um, his protest was about immigration, trade, the loss of manufacturing jobs, careless wars, and an excessively rambunctious Supreme Court. And his issues were good issues, but again, uh, because of his strange personality and inexperience, uh, he was needlessly ham-handed and divisive in advancing his causes. Uh, this, I think, was particularly true of immigration. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, fundamentally, in the end, his personality did himself, did himself in. I don't think he lost the election on issues. He lost it because he was the erratic person he was. So uh, I don't think uh, the record of the last... Uh, uh, 28 years in terms of our leadership in this country has been a terribly good one. And again, I think the selection process has a great deal to do with it because the primary system gives an enormous amount of power to the mass media as distinct from the local political organizations. And it gives an enormous amount of people who, uh, power to people who don't really know the candidates. And uh, the result is we have this very, these very inadequate leaders could George W. Bush have gotten the nomination had his father not fairly recently been president? No, I think clearly the answer to that is no. Uh, um, you know, I think uh, the name counted for something. And uh, uh, now Jeb Bush might have, but of course Jeb Bush had lost his race in Florida, and so they fell back on George W., which was a great misfortune. Do you think Jeb, Jeb had uh, had more skills than... than uh... Yeah, I think he had more substance. He had a very good record, I think, on education, for example. Uh, again, he was not a dramatic or compelling personality, but I think he would have been a reasonably effective president in terms of uh, congressional relations. He certainly would have had an education program that would have been far better than the one that George W. Bush came forth with that now has totally disappeared. Uh, I think his congressional relations would have been much better. Uh, he was simply more skilled and, and, uh, and again, uh, better educated. He didn't, didn't waste 15 or 20 years uh, uh, as a non-serious person. Uh, you know, it's interesting. When I was first looking over uh, material for uh, our conversation, 
about your book, and I want to mention the name again, Vox Clementis in Deserto. And uh, we're going to, um, and, and I want to talk about that title with you too, George. But um, it, it reminds me, I did an interview with a, with a local activist who had been complaining about the mayor and asked him, and, and I think he was even maybe pushing a recall. And I asked him if he thought the previous mayor did a better job. And he said no. And and as I asked him, he went back, th- I, we went back through about a half a dozen previous mayors. And he would have impeached or uh, recalled all of them. <laughs> and, well, and I'm, I, not, uh, I'm not of that school. Uh, I mean, I think that... Uh, up until really uh, uh, up until Clinton, we had at least passable leaders in the post-war period, and and some leaders of some distinction. I think uh, you know Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower, and in his uh, frequently misguided way, Johnson and Nixon were people of real substance. Uh, you know, I don't think that can be said of the people we've had since. I mean, once, uh, I, you know, I think Reagan uh, was a person of substance in that he had been governor of California and he knew what he believed and he had a serious agenda, whether people agreed with it or not. But I think the people we've had since then have been fundamentally non-serious in addition to being uh, having limited experience. And now we think, is the election of, of Joe Biden um, situational, or is it the pendulum uh, swinging back that, that we're changing our expectations? Well, I think he, he has some assets, obviously. Um, he's been a over time, a very mercurial politician. He has a tendency to go with the flow. And I think to the extent that he's getting himself into trouble, it's, a, it's on the social issues. Uh, he has sort of gone, gone whole hog on the culture war, which I think is a great mistake because because of the economy and COVID, he had a chance to reconstruct the Roosevelt coalition and bring back into the fold a great many uh, Southerners and Roman Catholics in the North, and because of his doubling down on the culture war, which is re- which really involves what should be state and local issues, he's losing that opportunity. So we're going to continue to have this sort of 50-50 division in the country, which I think is a misfortune. Uh, I do think that... Uh, uh, the pendulum on economic issues has definitely swung back in the direction of uh, greater equality and disenchantment with uh, uh, too much uh, laissez-faire. And um, you know, I think that's a healthy thing. And for that reason, I think his administration may be a healthy development. I think he's restrained in foreign policy, and I think that's a healthy development, um, as was Trump in his, in his way. But um, in terms of healing the divisions in the country, I think he's missing an opportunity. Now, the title of the book, George, Vox Clementis in Deserto, 
Um, as I understand it, it translates to mean a voice crying in the wilderness. I've seen uh, some definitions that say a voice crying in the desert. Um, but how did you come to select that? I mean, it, it, it is... Well, the, it, is, it is, as you pointed out, the, the motto of uh, Dartmouth College, where I, where I went. But uh, basically, it's, it was out of frustration uh, when you're in a provincial city, and Baltimore, although it's a large city, is a provincial city, it's very hard to make your voice he- your voice heard on a national basis. And when you do, it's sort of fortuitous. I've, I've been involved, particularly when I was much younger, in a number of major national controversies. But uh, in recent years, I've found that you, if you can't publish in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or the Washington Post, it's very difficult to... Uh, to get a hearing uh, for one's ideas, and I'm sure you've discovered that uh, from many of your guests. And no matter what you say, you're sort of in a desert. So I think frustration accounts for the title to some extent. Um, is is that a, a trend going forward? Is it, is it saying something editorially about the voice of reason? Yes, I mean... Um, I think that the media have really never been more, even though people say the Internet gives everybody a voice, it really doesn't. Uh, it gives everybody a microphone. It doesn't really yeah, help them, them with what to no. say. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And when you've got uh, Amazon with 70 or 80% of the book market, you have uh, uh, five publishers, and if a pending merger goes through four publishers, that control an enormous percentage of the book publishing industry. You have uh, the New York Times and two other papers that really uh, set the tone for journalism. You have Facebook with uh, with 80 or 90 percent penetration and Google the same way. You have these uh, essentially monopoly media. Um, There's an enormous amount of power there. And and it gets worse and worse because they, they become less and less humble I mean, the New York Times thinks it can redefine history uh, with the 1619 Project, redefine language by requiring everybody to capitalize the word black. Um, uh, And you have uh, have, uh, Amazon refusing to carry certain books on controversial subjects. And you have Facebook uh, not only censoring the more outrageous statements of President Trump, but refusing to let him tweet at all, which uh, you know has received criticism from Angela Merkel and Bernie Sanders, among others, and quite properly so, uh, you really don't have uh, freedom of discussion to the extent we once did in this country. To, to what degree, George, do you think that the public is a uh, co-conspirator uh, in that, in that uh, the things that seem controversial for controversy's sake um, seem to, to attract more attention than things of substance. Well, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that's true to a considerable degree. Uh, uh, I think 
the, the campaign finance system, and particularly the prevalence of television and uh, you know 15-second political commercials hasn't been helpful. Uh, I think uh, other countries have done a much better job with that. I think the British uh, don't let people buy commercials unless they're five minutes long. Uh, if you can't afford a five-minute commercial, you can buy one smaller one. But uh, it makes for a more, much more intelligent political campaign than what we have in this country, which are, um, I think the historian John Lukacs said that uh, you once had campaigns based on issues, and now you had, then you had campaigns based on personalities. And then lately you just have campaigns that are based on publicity, the sheer volume of publicity. Uh, and that's certainly not a sign of great progress. When you have uh, when you have a, a great number of people, and this is something that's been troubling me for a while, is the idea that there's a lack of trust, uh, trust by the public in uh, elected officials and agency and and business leaders, um, lack of trust even in science and and statistics and and other uh, uh, data. The the evolution of so-called fake news and alternative facts. How do you not be a voice crying in the wilderness? Well, the, you know, the lack of trust and the cynicism, uh, I, I think it partly comes from perceived lack of legitimacy of the leadership in the sense that uh, you're not being led by people who have uh, come up because of the approval of people who know them. Uh, the original American system and James Madison's system was a system based on filtering, as it was called, in which uh, people at low levels in politics were examined by those above them and promoted accordingly. And that's really the way a parliamentary system works. The Prime Minister of Great Britain and the Chancellor of Germany are not elected by the public. They're elected by parliamentarians who know about them, who know, know what their foible, foibles are. And when people are picked in that way, it's harder to take cheap, cheap shots at them. Uh, whereas when, when you get every Tom, Dick, and Harry who may land in high office, uh, you get a lot of people who tracked and in many instances deserve uh, cheap shots. That's, that's, I think, part of the problem, the way we select leadership. And that's something that something can be done about. That doesn't require a constitutional amendment that's within the power of both political parties simply by changing their rules to make the selection of presidential candidates the selection of the local, state, and congressional office holders, which is the way it once was. And that produced different results. For, for instance, in 1952, uh, Estes Kefauver won most of the Democratic primaries, and yet Hadley Stevenson was the nominee. And it was widely known among the uh, uh, political class that Kefauver, among other things, drank too much. And that had more than a little to do with the, with the outcome. Uh, that kind of filtering doesn't happen anymore. More with author George Liebman. Straight ahead.
Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. 
With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with author George Liebman, straight ahead. Do you think that these uh, these four presidents uh, that, that are highlighted by the book, um, Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump, uh, have contributed to the lack of trust or perhaps done little to um, change it or earn trust? Yeah, I think that's clearly true. I think I had some I have some British cousins, and at the time of the Clinton impeachment, uh, they said, "Well, this this sex scandal seems very silly to us, but of course, if he lied to a grand jury, he will have to resign." Well, of course, he didn't, and that really debased politics. I think of that particular uh, decision, and in in Obama's case, there was the resort to executive orders and and uh, to the judiciary as a means of bringing about change in preference to uh, uh, persuading Congress. Uh, uh, Congress was more or less treated during the Obama administration as though it didn't exist, and the same, the same was even more true of the state legislatures. Uh, the Democrats you know, lost most of the state legislatures, and, uh, and they lost them because uh, state politics... Uh, to the political class were a matter almost of indifference. And so you wind up with a situation where there's all this focus on who happens to be the president, uh, 
and less and less focus on the uh, the issues which once defined the purposes of a political party. George, how did you select the uh, the essays to include in this collection? Well, I uh, I thought the ones that had the greatest you know contemporary the, the, the related issues that are still live issues are the ones that I picked. Um, I didn't have an infinite number to choose from, but I had probably a hundred more that I could have used. But uh, uh, that's really how uh, how they were chosen. And then the collection also includes about twenty uh, lengthy book reviews and three uh, three essays on other subjects. One is about the Kennedy administration. One is about the original design of the UN, and the third is about the legacy of Nazi Germany. Uh, but uh, it's it's really an effort to take a longer view of the last 30 years, and I, I think readers will be interested in it. As I indicated, it's published by Amazon, and it's you can get it you can get it for $22 online in paperback or for $10 in a Kindle, and uh, I think people will certainly find some parts of it interesting if they don't find it all interesting. Uh, and it is it is a kind of s- series of snapshots of different things that all involve the same problem. Well, I I, f- I find the whole idea uh, fascinating. And, and George, um, we're just pretty much out of time. But I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we're talking about. Obviously, the book Vox Clementis in Deserto by George Liebman is. Uh, a great place to start, but um, George, do you have a website where people can get to know a little bit more about you and your work, well, past, present, and future? I have a, a, a website uh, for a think tank that I've run called the Calvert Institute, www.calvertinstitute.org, which has basically all my op-eds for the last 20 years or so. But also, if you go on Amazon, you will find a listing of my books. and I've written about 10 or 12 books on law and history, uh, one called Diplomacy Between the Wars, and one is a biography of John Negroponte, who was a classmate of mine 50 years ago. And then there are, there's a book called The Common Law Tradition that's about five University of Chicago law professors of the 50s and their reaction to the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And uh, people who are interested will find the books interesting. Um, well, George... I have, I, I have really favored biography as a, uh, as, as a way of writing about politics because it leads you to places that you wouldn't go if you were just selecting historical facts on the basis of your prior knowledge. Well, George, thanks so much for sharing a little time with me this morning, and uh, best of luck with the book and, and all of your work. Well, thank you, and I, I think your questions have been very thoughtful and uh, and interesting. And I know that uh, you, you're in a community that has suffered from dubious political leadership at times, so I suspect <laughs> some of the things I've said will resonate. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that, George. We... Uh, um, the the area has uh, some some definite trust issues. Well, I wish you luck, and I'm I'm sure you were a great influence for good, and I, I do thank you for this opportunity. All right, take care.
Author George Liebman's uh, book, Vox Clementis in Deserto, or A Voice Crying in the Wilderness. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. I would like to explain how it came to pass that I got fat. Ladies and gentlemen, I got fat as a public service. When I was a child, my mother said to me, clean the plate because children are starving in Europe. And I might point out that that was years before the Marshall Plan was ever heard of. So I would clean the plate four, five, six times a day because somehow I felt that that would keep the children from starving in Europe. But I was wrong. They kept starving and I got fat. So I would like to say to every one of you who is either skinny or in some other way normal, when you walk out on the street and you see a fat person, do not scoff at that fat person. Oh no. Take off your hat. Hold it over your heart. Lift your chin up high. And in a proud, happy voice, say to him, Hail to thee, fat person! You kept us out of war! This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. chief he's the chief and he needs hailing he is the chief so everybody hail like crazy hail to that's more or less hail to the chief if you don't i'll have to kill you i am the chief so you better watch your step the tom summer program.com Well, that wraps it up for this Flag Day edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to my guests, especially uh, this last hour, author George Liebman, talking about his book, Vox Clementis in Deserto, exploring the failures of the past four presidential administrations. And uh, also, I want to say thank you to Amy Russo. It was uh, a delight talking with her and... Um, about her book, uh, Women of the White House, the illustrated story of the First Ladies of the United States of America. And, of course, we uh, kicked it off uh, at the beginning uh, in the first hour with uh, Mark Shriver, who uh, has written a children's book. Mark is the uh, president of Save the Children Action Network and the son of uh, Sergeant Shriver. And uh, his uh, children's book is uh, a counting book with a message called Ten Hidden Heroes. And what a delight. It was an encore. But I thought it kind of fit into the uh, Flag Day theme that we had uh, going for today's uh, edition of the show. And 
coming up tomorrow, we've got an interesting grouping. Um, guns, sleep, and love all meshed together for uh, tomorrow's edition of the show. Anyway, uh, thanks for tuning in. I hope you uh, enjoyed the show today. And uh, be sure and join us every day from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern live and uh, simulcast on 92.1 FM as well as streamed at TomSumnerProgram.com. Of course, the show repeats all day and night online. And uh, you can uh, also go to the archives for past interviews and and episodes. And uh, the show is uh, repeated at 9 p.m on WFOV 92.1 FM. But there's Smoke and George tickling the ivories, letting me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. So I will do just that. But I will be back tomorrow with another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.